0: Curioso, and welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, Episode 194, Three Plants and the Population Boom. In the early 18th century, with the ascension of Queen Anne to the throne, one of her key positions was that there needed to be a unification of the crowns of Scotland and England, which had been separate through all the years of the Stuarts. And of course, even going back to the Tudor period, there were generally, thoughts of unity between the two countries. In a period of colonial expansion, there was a desire amongst the elites and the business community across both England and Scotland to put an end to the competing interests of the semi-independent Scottish leadership. In 1705, the two governments agreed to work on what was called the Agreement of Union. Over the next two years, representatives of both parliaments tried to iron out various issues between each side. In Scotland, the pro-unionists were a mix of those who wanted the union to gain the advantages that would come from it that would give them effectively a bigger piece of the economic and power pie. But others saw it as the best solution for a bad situation as they themselves felt that if they didn't do this, then that unity would be forced upon them and generally under worse terms by the English. Likely, they were probably not wrong. Unification at the time was deeply unpopular amongst the Welsh population at large, and talk of uprisings and rumors that would come around that, however, did not really happen, at least at this point. There was not a groundswell of aggression, and on the 1st of May, 1707, the Kingdom of Great Britain was born as the Acts of Union were approved. Scotland was given seats in the English, now British, Parliament in London, with only Ireland remaining outside of the power structure of the government, and another independent government was now removed. The Scottish government, which had been a thorn in the side of England from its earliest days as the old Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, was now fully and completely folded into the larger society. In a way, you could say that the English had done what the Romans never could, conquer Scotland. One of the major additions to the Act of Union was the establishment of the House of Hanover as the next family of Stuart Tudor bloodline in succession. Both Mary and Anne had been unable to have children, or living children at least, who could inherit the kingdom. So bringing their cousins in to take over after the death of Anne was seen as a good compromise among all. So it was that George I, a side Stuart at best, his great grandfather on his mother's side was James I, Elizabeth Stuart had been married to the king of Bohemia many, many years prior, who was king of that particular place for a grand total of one winter, thus the labeling of both of them as winter and king and queen. George would be made king of Great Britain, however, in 1714, after the death of Queen Anne, and the Georgian period of English history began. Of course, for most Americans, George the Third is the only one that they know best. This episode being released, of course, on July 3rd, just the day before Independence Day, is not lost on me a bit for the irony of that comment. Yet, this whole thing is still in our future, so we're going to avoid that for now. At this point, Wales was changing, and with it, much of what would make up Wales of the 19th century would be established throughout the beginnings, middle, and end of the 18th. Part of what drove so many changes in Wales came down to three plants and their heavy usage that really didn't come until this point. Those plants are known as sugarcane, potatoes, and cotton. Each of these would help drive change that would see Britain as a whole thrive and drive their economies both inside the kingdom and out to the various colonies and the world at large. For the first time in Wales, it would lead to cultural, political, and economic change in ways that could not have been imagined even 50 years prior. Wales, like all of Europe in this period, leading into the 18th century, had been a place where disease, poor food supplies, via either flooding or drought or plagues or war had created higher mortality rates, which would play havoc with local populations. Once a disease entered the country, there was little at that point that could stop the spread because there was so little knowledge of what was causing them and how to prevent them. So there was only either small things that could be done or major drastic things like quarantine that might bring them under control. And I say, very clearly only might. Economies were largely dependent on the shipping of food from local areas to local markets, and the wealthy largely were created by the land that they held. As the centuries wore on into the late medieval and renaissance periods, a modest middle class of merchants and craftsmen had changed some of that dynamic. With the expansion of colonies and wealth that came from them, there could be earned what would then become the new merchant shipping class, which of course exploded over the 17th century and into this one. As we covered for a few episodes previous, financial rewards in trade or by attacking that same trade would create large sums of wealth for whomever benefited from it. To give a little context... Until I looked into it, I didn't even know, actually, that sugarcane had started life in the Polynesian Islands, eventually making its way to Taiwan, and instead of heading from where I thought, which was from the Americas to the West, it actually headed from the East to the West, heading through Taiwan, then arriving in the Southeast Asia, and eventually India, As time went on, it moved into Islamic countries and migrated eventually into Spain through the Andalusian linkages, so that when the Spanish conquistadors arrived in America, they brought the plant with them. Finding that it thrived in the colonies meant that they could grow in greater abundance and make an exorbitant amount of money off of them by avoiding having to make trades with the Muslim nations to the east. One of the driving forces, in fact, for the settlement and conquering of various portions of Africa and Asia because of trying to go around that very Muslim trade in spices. Sugarcane, as it has in our own day, created a craving amongst the population that was difficult to stop once it started, of course, Sugar is the base product for rum, for example, but also, of course, it is used in many ingredients, even back then, suddenly replacing berries and honey as the main source of sweetener and a lot of foodstuffs. So it also happens to directly lead to the use of mass African slaves in the Caribbean as they were forced into planting and harvesting them which was perceived as and was a difficult thing to do because of the plant being not a straightforward plant in order to gain sugar out of. And so because of that, a lot of work and effort had to go into them. Thus, the product was tedious and time-consuming, so to make real wealth off of it, having slaves was cheaper than hiring regular labor which meant you kept much more of the profits, which, of course, was the driving force at the time. It also meant that as Britain and France, but specifically in this case Britain, conquered the Caribbean islands, taking them away from their Spanish and French overlords, meant that they then gained from this trade as well, driving the triangle trade between Britain, Africa, and the colonies, in such a way because of this sugar growth. Meanwhile, another key plant that arrived, the next one in our list that we'll talk about, is the potato. However, these starchy foods would be something very different from the sweeter plant. They were not a product of the old world, where they had been available from ancient times, but rather... They were a plant that was localized in South America. Even to this day, the biggest variety of potatoes comes from a very specific area in South America. The potato was first domesticated in the region of modern-day southern Peru and northwest Bolivia by pre-Columbian farmers around Lake Titicaca. As explorers found them, they brought them back and quickly understood that potatoes were relatively easy to grow almost anywhere, and they were generally easy to harvest and gave a level of nutrition that was higher than, say, bread, which had been a key driver, you know, flour being a key driver of foodstuffs for millennia before that. And because of this, you could nourish and feed a large population with something that would fill them up fairly quickly, easily, and again cheaply, in short order, and in a relatively low-growing period. So, because of all of this, they became a staple of diets all over Britain and her colonies. According to conservative estimates, the introduction of the potato was responsible for a quarter of the growth in the Old World population, and urbanization between the 1700 and 1900. The reliance on the potato as a staple crop and the lack of genetic diversity of that same crop because, of course, they weren't bringing over all the varieties of the potato from the New World. They were only bringing over specific ones that grew quickly and had a large yield that was generally considered edible. This would leave them vulnerable because of this lack of diversity because of the lack of genetic alternatives. And so, of course, that left humans vulnerable as well. As the popularity of these particular foodstuffs grew, blight or disease that would strike them would then affect the human population. It was that blight which created mass Irish death and migration in the early 1800s, which is partly responsible for the number of Irish ancestry people living in North America. If sugarcane was the early driver of economic transfer from the old world plant, which found new life in the Americas, the use of cotton on the other hand, was a whole different old world plant that once again reached the Americas to become a larger contributor to an industrial society. Cotton had been used for a textile for thousands of years and would only really explode in Europe during the early modern period. Cotton manufacturing was actually introduced to Europe during the Muslim conquest of the Iberian Peninsula and Sicily. The knowledge of cotton weaving was then spread to northern Italy in the 12th century when Sicily was conquered by the Normans and consequently to the rest of Europe over the later periods. The spinning wheel introduced to Europe in 1350 had improved the speed of cotton spinning, and by the 15th century, Venice, Antwerp, and Haarlem were important ports for cotton trade, and the sale of transportation of cotton fabrics became obviously very profitable. During this time period, the British-owned East India Company, Introduced Britain to the cheap cotton cloth, known as calico, around the time of the restoration of the monarchy in the 1660s, cotton was initially imported as a novelty sideline. However, the cheap, colorful cloth proved to be popular and overtook the East India Company's spice trade in the last decade of the 17th century. Of course, realizing that they had a good thing going, the East India Company began to meet demand, particularly, of course, for Calico. Expanding its factories in Asia and producing and importing cloth in bulk, therefore starting to flood the market with this cheaper and more color option cloth, the resulting importing created competition for the domestic woolen and linen textile producers something that would of course directly affect Welsh farmers who had so long depended on their abundant supply of wool through obviously the sheep that they had there to dress a nation. As with any items displacing a local one, there began to be pushback in the government from those who were being impacted. The weavers, spinners, dyers, shepherds, and farmers objected to the import of this cheap cloth The Calico debate, as it got to be known, became one of the major political issues between the 1680s and 1730s as the Parliament began to see a decline in domestic textile sales and an increase in imported textiles from places like China and India. Boy, does this seem like a a thing we've heard in modern times, strangely. Seeing the East India Company and their textile importation as a threat to the domestic business, Parliament passed the 1700 Calico Act blocking the importation of cotton cloth, as there was no punishment for continuing to sell cotton. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factors' delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors' ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welsh history pod 50 and use the code welsh history pod 50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welsh history pod 50 at factormeals.com slash welsh history pod 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. smuggling of the popular material became commonplace. At the end of the day, market forces were overcoming local objections. In 1721, dissatisfaction with the results of the first act created a drive for more legislation, and the Parliament passed stricter additions, this time prohibiting the sale of most cottons, imported and domestic, exempting only Fustanian, and raw cotton. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Don't know. Once again, they felt they finally had a solution to the vexing issue. In a closed market of the British system, this normally would have worked, and or it might have worked at least, but the government was not competing with a foreign government or with some foreign entity or business remained outside of the kingdom, they were dealing with a business that had royal seal of approval and was not necessarily outside of their dominion, for lack of a better phrase. Because they had set up an exemption for raw cotton from this prohibition, almost immediately this saw a production chain from finished products to local industry picking up the developmentary slack as raw cotton continued to enter the country. Locals initially produced Fustanian, or uh, which is a variety of heavy cloth woven from raw cotton, and this was then produced for the domestic market. Slowly but surely, cotton began to take over the market as more and more local manufacturing of cotton grew so did the innovation that would lead eventually to the Industrial Revolution and a change in how and where and why people were employed. So, with all of that in mind, let's take a step back from the macro view of a broader world and look back on how all of this affected Wales. I mentioned earlier that the population was increasing in Wales at this period. There are, of course, no hard numbers, because the first modern census, though not fully a complete or official one, wasn't accomplished until 1801, which, of course, was to the joy of genealogists and historians the world over, because it gave us the first real insight from a governmental standpoint on what society was made up of, as sort of a snapshot of that day. But... It is estimated that from 1750 to the first census of 1801, Wales's population increased from roughly 489,000 people to 587,000 people. A staggering increase of nearly 100,000 people in roughly 50 years did not come from mass immigration or better health care, such as being able to stop plagues from wreaking havoc with the population or stopping droughts necessarily or other derivative things which had been happening all over the world from time immemorial to humanity. Instead, it suggested that birth rates had increased radically in this period. This was particularly true in the more and developing urban areas of Wales. Up until the 18th century, it was estimated that only as little as 11% of the population of Wales lived in any sort of urban center. This has been disputed by some historians that argue that the effects of the plague, and specifically the Glyndwr Revolt, are overwrought and overspoken. Whether I agree with that is another thing. Uh, and But the numbers I've seen there then increased to about 22%, which is, to be fair, much larger. However, this is also encountering the idea that most towns up until this period did not exceed 2,500 people, and of those that were around that number, there was only a maximum of 50, and compare that to England, where there were 750 of these kind of towns. The argument is, of course, made that there were just smaller communities across Wales, which then made up of little hamlets and villages so that there was still a level of urbanization, but it isn't accounted for because it isn't a major center in the same way that the two main centers at the time in Wales, Camarthen and Wrexham, were, which both exceeded 2,500 people. And, of course, they were the only two that could even boast those numbers. This would start to change as we reach the 18th century. Flintshire and Glamorgan are two examples of the biggest increases in this period, as it came just about the time that the Industrial Revolution began to kick off, which would make sense as the Flintshire area became a key steel export location, and Glamorgan had become a huge industrial coal supplier not long after. Of course, when we're talking Glamorgan, for example, we're talking about Cardiff and Merthyr and places in the valleys, which were starting to increase exponentially the amount of coal mines and coal production going into from the late 18th century into the early 19th century and beyond. Urban centers started to expand as these labor-intensive industrial jobs grew. Just to head off questions, we're not going to go into coal mining in this episode in any sort of major thrust. One, because we're closing in on the end of the episode, and two, I wanted to dedicate actual full episodes to the discussions around these because, of course, everything about them becomes so key to Wales, especially in the 19th and early 20th centuries. And there's so much politically, economically and culturally that they influence, that you can't not cover them in great detail. So I just wanted to say that before we kind of brush over it, like we're not going to talk about it again. That's not the case. However, I did want to touch briefly, as we conclude, on one town that did benefit greatly from this early expansion of both births and changing economic fortunes of the period. Swansea, which of course had been a town in South Wales for many, many years, going back to, one could argue, the Iron Age, but realistically, most of what we know about the, the town was created by Vikings and then was dominated eventually by the Normans, who then plopped a castle there. Coal smelting had grown with it, and of course there were coal mines in the area. The combination of coal and copper production began to be something that was driving the area. Mines in Cornwall would ship to the Swansea area simply to have everything smelted there. The reason for this, of course, was because it was easier to ship to the coal than it was to ship the coal to the mines. So they would mine the copper, ship it to Swansea. Swansea would then smelt the copper and then, of course, send it out to various parts of both the kingdom and the colonies. Thus, Swansea became a hub of economic activity during this period, and this created an economic boom from a very tiny port town into something much larger. And by the late 17th century and up until 1801, Swansea's population grew by 500%. So the urbanization of this area increased, as I said, exponentially and in ways that I don't think 50 years prior they would have even imagined. Make no mistake, this is not the first Welsh community to explode like this, nor would it be the last, as the Industrial Revolution, higher births, followed by changing employment environments, and of course increasing methodologies for protecting the health of the population drove a lot of the urbanization that would happen, especially in the east and the southern part of the country, which we will talk about in much greater detail as we continue forward. With all of that said and done, I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I thank you for your comments and questions and concerns that you send me. I do read them and I do try and pay attention to them. Even the pronunciation corrections, you, I do try and remember to do things correctly. Sometimes I still muddle back to the old pronunciations, which are wrong, but there we are. Um, and uh, I am trying to put in place reminders to myself about that particular problem. Um, so with all that, if you'd like to reach out to me, you can do so on Twitter uh, at Welsh History Pod. On Facebook at Facebook slash or Facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. And you can always reach out to me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. I do try and answer any emails I get sent. If I don't respond immediately, it isn't because I'm ignoring you, it's just because I haven't had a time to respond due to work or other reasons. However, if you would like to contribute to our community, and I would greatly appreciate any and all donations should they come. You can do so at patreon.com forward slash Welsh history. Thank you everybody for listening. Hope you have a great summer and we'll see you later. Take care. Bye bye. Welsh history podcast is a member of the evergreen podcast network. To find more information on them, you can do so at evergreenpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.
1: History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On conflicted,